Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, the Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, the Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, the Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. All right, this is Sarah Ellen, and I'm not yet... Oh, here's Susan. Hi, have you found me? Hello? 
Yes, I see you. You are live. You are here. Thank you. Um, we are here. Yes, good. All right. The wind is blowing, blowing. Blew so hard yesterday, I thought we were going to be blown all the way to Kansas. Wow. 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 And welcome spring. Yes, welcome spring. And it continues to be, oh, so such wonderful weather for making maple syrup. Daytime temperatures over freezing in the sun, really coming in strong, and nighttime temperatures down. Right, they were predicting way down in the teens last night, but as we said, oh, it only got into the low 20s. And how how are you, and how's everything by you? Oh, everything here is lovely. Spring is revealing herself, and we've had some sunny days, lots of winds today. As you said, over by you, my wind chime is out there dancing. I can hear her outside the window, and it's been a beautiful spring day. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful spring day. And at 9 o'clock, we're going to be talking to Virginia Rosenberg, who's an intuitive astrologer for social change. So maybe she can tell us what's going on in astrology because she sees it as a multi-dimensional map. Mm. Stick with us until 9 o'clock East Coast time to hear Virginia Rosenberg or come on back then and you are going to learn a lot about what intuitive astrology has to offer. Mm, Yes, and I will say I have followed Virginia Rosenberg for a little while and I, she is just someone every full and new moon I really looked forward to her reports and, and still do. She's Shrunk them down a little bit, but it is just amazing how it seems she is very in touch with the now and what what's going on. So I'm also looking forward to hearing Virginia later on as well. Ah, when I was living in New York City in the '60s, an actor Hal Holbrook did a performance piece when she was Mark Twain, mm. and I remember that at the time that people were talking about it, there was a real hubbub about, oh, my gosh, he was he's, like, really, like, you know. It was still, you know, <clears throat> close enough to the time when Mark Twain had actually lived that there were people whose lives had overlapped with Mark Twain who were seeing this and saying, that's him, that's him. He really is, like, you know, being Mark Twain. And so there was a, a video made of it, and which is put out as a movie. And I could, uh, to see it, it was, speaking of timely is what made me think about it. Because the things he was saying about politics, you know, you would think he was talking about what's going on today, without a doubt. Mm. Mm. Wow, transcendent. So magical sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do we have any people who have raised their hand to ask questions tonight? 
we do. We have two callers that have pressed one to let us know that they would like to come on the line and speak with you and ask their question. Our first caller is coming from the 650 area code. You are live on the air from the 650. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hey, um, I have a question for you about honey. A caller last week was saying that her honey bubbled, and you said that was um, when it was time to use it. And this is my second year making honey. She said that her garlic honey was bubbling, I believe. Oh, garlic. I thought she said currant. So my question is, like, so this is my second year making honey, and I found last year that So when you say making honey, you mean making herbal honey? Infused. Okay. The the infused honey with the, you know, cut up the herbs and then pour the honey over it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so... And garlic um, is the only one that that's going to happen to. The rest of them are kind of going to crystallize. Now, do they... By crystallizing, you mean that the honey crystallizes at the bottom under the where the herbs flo- float up? It can crystallize around the herb. It can crystallize at the bottom. It depends on the honey you use. Oh, okay. So I thought... How old it is and, mm-hmm. you know, where I like to really, really fill the jar. I mean, stuff the jar, fill the jar, so that there's a very high ratio of honey to plant material. Mm-hmm. So there's not much room for the honey to do anything except kind of crystallize around the, the herb. Mm-hmm. Do you okay. ever stir it? Go ahead. Is this what you're seeing when you're making these honeys? I, I most yeah. Sometimes I do, but I thought maybe that um, when the honey crystallized, it meant that it wasn't infusing the medicines from the herbs. Like everything would stop because it was crystallized. So then I started stirring it, and I'm kind of thinking no. that might have not be a good idea to stir it. I think you're right. I think it's not a good idea to stir it, and I don't think it stops. Also, remember that when you use them, you use the herb. Yeah, that that we do. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter even if it does stop, right? Yeah, because what's already in the honey would be the, the richer, perhaps. And you're going to eat the herb. It doesn't matter if it's in the honey or the herb. Mm-hmm. Because the honey and the herb have worked their magic on each other. Mhm. And when you scoop out the honey and the herb and put that into hot water or a cup of some other kind of tea, you're getting what's in the herb and what's in the honey. Mhm. Whenever we open a remedy, we expose it to What's in the air? And as we know, what's in the air is mold, spores, bacteria, viruses. Yeah. So so better to 
make the remedy and then just keep checking until you use it. Yeah. Now, I did stir some of them, wondering how that would work. And then I'll just, I guess, just close them up and yes. hope for the best. Yes. How long have they been sitting? Not long. Maybe a week or so. I've just made I just made my new batch and I thought I'd get really clever and I shouldn't have. And I, you made a batch of Well, I did mostly rosemary because it's growing around me and it's really delicious and it's like Isn't it wonderful? Oh, wow. Yeah. So you harvested fresh rosemary mm-hmm. and you and you cut it up pretty small mm-hmm. and you Put it in a jar, and then you poured honey over it. Right. And then within a week, the honey started to crystallize. It did. Interesting. Well, I don't know if it crystallized. It just started to bubble a little bit around. The Actually, the rosemary didn't do that as much as the dandelion that I made. That's the one that really starts to weep. Dandelion flowers. The dandelion flowers, right. It's so good, too. It's so good. And, yes, because there's some water in there, right? Mm-hmm. And in the it, flowers. And there's just a lot happening in that flower. So, yes, it's kind of like the garlic. It is. It's going to be like, you know, it can bubble. It can be okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I guess that dandelion one I just should use sooner. Than later, Sounds reasonable if, to me. If I opened it. Yeah. Yeah, so you just basically put the honey in, shut it up, shut the top, and leave it for six weeks or more. Exactly. And if it's something like dandelion where I think there's going to be like some fermentation going on, I'll put it somewhere where I can keep an eye on it or put it in a bowl so if it like seeps out, I don't have a big mess on all the other jars. Mhm. It's really amazing stuff that infused honey. It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, such it's a so simple, simple way to, so to preserve the herbs and to get the good of them. Mhm. And I overmade it last year, and it still was good for months and months. Oh goodness! I have some herbal honeys that are decades old. And you haven't opened them at all. Or I have, but I always make sure that the level of the honey and the level of the plant is at least equal to the honey a little higher. So when I'm taking it out, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm taking out herb and honey mm-hmm. at the same time. <clears throat> now, do you add more honey to the jar or just leave what you already have? I just leave what I have and start a new jar. Mm-hmm. And some of them you have for decades. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I have like an OSHA root honey, and I don't like to use a lot of it up. Actually, I'm using, somebody else gave me some more OSHA root honey, and in a bottle with a broken top, so I've been using that in my salad dressing. It's really good. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's, very, it's very liquidy. I'm not sure what kind of honey she used, but it's, you know, I'm very, very, it's like very pourable. It's more mm-hmm. like a syrup. And you've said that you you use uh, the cooked honey, not the raw honey. It's kind of like grocery store honey. No, that's not what I've said at all. Mm-hmm. 
most what I have said is that I don't pay extra for raw honey. Mm-hmm. That most honey is raw, unless it is put out by a big manufacturer, and even big manufacturers aren't cooking it. Mm-hmm. And if they were, um, I certainly am in favor of cooking because cooking kills diseases. Mm-hmm. And in general, there's very little good to be said for raw. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to honey, which I have called bee leg honey. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be putting it in hot water, guess what? Yeah, it's going to cook. You're the one who's cooking it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, supermarket honey, as you called it, may be adulterated with sugar syrup. So I do buy honey from local beekeepers or honey that has been sourced locally where I can follow it back to the beehive. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, they're just uncapping their hives and using a centrifuge to get the honey out, which is the simplest way for a small beekeeper. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, um, so you said that you drink green tea, which I do also. Yes, I love and green tea. I'm nervous about all you hear about how polluted China is, but most of the green tea comes from China. Where do you get your green tea from? Mountain rose herbs. I buy their organic matcha. Oh, so you buy matcha and not green tea. Mm-hmm. Is it from China? Or do you I, don't have have any... the, I don't have the bag or the catalog in front of me, so I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. But I know that it is certified organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if it's organic, I would think that it would be okay, even if it, they always say there's so much pollution in China and that it would be absorbed through the leaves. But um, when you look at the companies, they tell you how it's this fresh mountain air and that the soil is organic. So that should be okay, shouldn't it? You live in a world in which persistent organic pollutants are everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, in a way, it's kind of splitting hairs to ask ourselves if a healthy food is healthy enough. Mm-hmm. Is it healthier than soda pop? Yes. Good. <laughs> I think after that it becomes a little pedantic. Mm-hmm in the same way that we're really trying to get the message out to people that the studies in which eating fruits and vegetables have been shown to improve health and longevity have not focused on organic food. It is better to eat non-organic produce than to eat no produce. Mm -hmm. It's better to eat non-organic fruits and vegetables than to eat no fruits and vegetables. 
it's better to drink your green tea than to not drink green tea. Mm hmm I've tried tea from other countries, and the Chinese teas, I think, are better. So <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I keep a list on my refrigerator door mm-hmm. of the dirty dozen. Hmm? I, and I buy the dirty dozen organic. Oh, yeah, 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 the dirty dozen. Yeah, I've heard you say that. That makes a lot of sense. And kale and nectarines and apples and grapes and peaches and cherries and pears and tomatoes and celery and the last one is potatoes, and I give myself a slide on potatoes, and I buy regular potatoes usually. Mm-hmm. And then underneath it, they have the clean 15, the ones you'd never have to worry about. Buy any avocados, sweet corn, pineapple, onions, papaya, sweet peas, eggplant, asparagus, cauliflower, cantaloupe, broccoli, mushrooms, cabbage, honeydew, and kiwi fruit. The vast majority of corn grown in the U.S. is GMO, except for the 1% grown for human consumption, which is never GMO. Really? Yeah. So the corn that's grown for animals is the GMO. Right. Ah. Hmm. That's good to know. Readings from Susan's refrigerator. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I have a quick question about growing mint. Most of my mint, peppermint that I grew, after it grew for a while, had like an almost a rust-colored growth of some kind or discoloration on the backs of the leaves. Does that sound like it? Was, I, it, was it evenly across all the backs of the leaves? Was yes. it like a little round dots? Yes. Yes, to which? It was little round dots? Yes. That's insect damage. Okay, but it's safe to use? Yes, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't mind sharing with insects. Yeah. Okay. And my um, catnip did the same thing, but it was white on the tops of the leaves. So, I guess that's insect damage too, and safe to use. Catnip gets kind of fuzzy and looks kind of white on top. Mhm. That's how this is. Yeah. It just doesn't smell moldy or look droopy or like it's infected with something, right? No. No, it just has that kind of covering of that white, almost similar to the mint, but the mint is a rust color, and this is like a white color but on the top and not the bottom. I I think what you're seeing is normal variations. All right, good. Yeah. Okay. So long as it smells good to you and tastes good to you, then there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and it all dried really well. All right. Wonderful. Oh, well, thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Thanks. All right. We have four callers that have pressed one to let us know that they have a question. Our next caller is calling from the 
845 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. What's up tonight? Oh, well, we survived the storm. That's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I just kept thinking about what Texas just went through, and I said, ah, piece of cake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, March, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Certainly is, blowing like a lion. Woo! Oh, yeah, wow. (laughs) So tonight I'm calling uh, about something I learned today uh, that I'd like to open a discussion about um, because this information uh, is being held from the general population and it's about the new vaccine, and it's uh, research seems to suggest it should be of great concern to anyone who is immune compromised, which I am not. Uh, but we all know and love people that are, and you know we could always become that ourselves, I suppose. Um, but uh, my friend. Uh, uh, wants to get her vaccine because she has um, multiple. So when you so when you say when you say it's of great concern. Okay. Yeah. Um, when when we get into a car, like how many people a year die in car accidents? Oh, gee, I should Hundreds know this thousand. answer. Yes? yes, a lot. Okay. Yes. How many people have died from being vaccinated? Oh, uh, I hear none. the numbers under 2,000 now. None. There are none who have died from being vaccinated. Well, I mean, they don't get the vaccine and then just die, but there are um, reports of people dying within 48 hours. Of course, they were mostly over 70 years old, so maybe they were going to die anyway. I, Of course, there's no correlation, and I get what you're saying. But I so I think grave concern perhaps is inflammatory language. Did I say grave? Yes. Oh, I apologize. So <laughs> I, I, I exaggerate. COVID, <laughs> COVID is of great concern for people who are immunocompromised as well. Right. So that's and why has, my friend certainly yeah. has killed in the United States over half a million people. The vaccine is a very good idea. I know that. And um, maybe I use the word grave concern because I had a baby sister die within hours after getting a vaccine. This was uh, uh, back in the early 60s. But that being said, I'm just saying maybe that's why I use that word without even realizing. But the thing is, um, I'm, I'm concerned about people who are immune compromised and my friend is with multiple sclerosis. So she got permission at 50 to get the vaccine. She's getting it tomorrow. She's getting the Moderna that it's a, you know, the MRNA vaccine. Now um, I said, why don't you just wait and get the Johnson and Johnson since it's a one shot and they're dishing it out quickly now. And she said, Oh no, my immunologist said, do not. 
take that one is not an mRNA uh, vaccine. It rather uses um, a uh, long-term uh, uh uh, virus uh, that's been studied and researched in uh, child with uh, HIV and some other uh, viruses. I think they used it with Ebola. It's the it's an adenovirus, which is a double-stranded DNA virus. So this is way different than a, an RNA. And they, I guess, they're Do using you not believe a, by definition that a virus can have a double strand. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I I was under the impression that viruses were uh, all dead without a nucleus. So I'm like, well, how can this adenoid, uh, I mean, adenovirus 26, adds 26, uh, how can this virus have a double-stranded DNA? I'm a little confused. I try to research a lot of this stuff, especially lately. Well, no, thank you, because um, I love this stuff, and every time you talk about it, it's it's like Christmas to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is, seriously. Um, uh, uh, so, um, well, you know, I, I, and now I'm a little bit confused, because there's, they're claiming this, uh, these ad, ad, adenoviruses, which there are some, Oh, 51 different uh, types, uh-huh. um, and they all, like, are responsible for different, um, I guess, attacks on organs. This particular one uh, is known to cause severe respiratory, so perhaps that's why this might be considered um, a, a good, you know, a good choice against uh, something like that, um, but um, they, they're just saying it causes such a heck of an immune response that it would not be good for anyone immune compromised. And I did look up the research, which was before the coronavirus, and they did indeed say uh, that this would not be appropriate with people. Uh so the general public is not being made aware of this yet. I'm aware that most stuff like this is about, there's about a two-week delay. So I would expect in about two weeks we're going to hear about it on the news. But what's going on here? How, I, what's, why, you know, double-stranded DNA, a virus, really? What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on this? I, um, I'm just so confused now. With what I thought I knew, and now I'm learning some viruses are very much alive, or were, I, I don't understand. I don't either. And you certainly had the advantage uh, of me of having at least had an opportunity to nose around and see what you can find out. Um, so I'm not following the specifics of the vaccines so specifically um, that I can engage in an intelligent conversation about this. I know that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is very different uh, 
from the two and not just in its temperature requirements and the fact that you only need one shot, but that it's a, a different way of creating an immune system that is in the know. Well, I appreciate that. I wouldn't have known anything at all if it wasn't for a dear friend of mine going to get the vaccine and me being concerned about her. Um, Personally, I won't get the vaccine myself because I feel uh, no need for it. Um, I'm not, you know, in the public. And uh, I'm also just... uh, I'm not a vaccine person. Um, I don't even travel because, you know, if the places, if it would require such. Uh, I'm just, um, uh, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I just, I'm too sensitive or something. I just, I just, uh, I'm worried about my uh, having an anaphylactic reaction or a heart uh, problem or you know, I hear some people get the swelling in the brain and uh, somewhere else, and I already feel like I might be there, so I don't want to add to it. Um, but anyway, I just thought that was interesting just to bring out for food for thought, for anybody listening, for for yourself, for the future. This should be coming out as an open discussion uh, more I'm, I'm just kind of more concerned that it's not being discussed openly to the public. Uh, my friend was going to get the vaccine anyway and just uh, decided well, to call I, her immunologist. Let me say, I'm a little bit confused because, first of all, here's what I thought you said. Your friend had an appointment or was planning to go and get the Moderna vaccine. Mm-hmm. And you said, why don't you wait for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? And then you went to check on it, and you found that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine seems to be contraindicated for anyone who's immunocompromised. After she said her immuno, immune, immunologist just told her, whatever you do, don't get that one. That because one. Your MS. Yeah. So she Only get the mRNA going to uh, get vaccine. the uh, Modena one then, as she had planned originally. Yeah, that's what she said. What you're talking about is specific to the Johnson & Johnson. The new one, yeah. It's not yet available, I think. They rolled it out today. Today? All right. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, really, the next two weeks is going to show us a lot, like how do people react to it and what happens. But no one seems to be aware of the fact that uh, immune compromised patients. Uh, all research suggests that's a no no because of the well, uh, well, very I, robust I, I immune response. I appreciate you saying it, but it's the fourth time you said it, so I'm going to say green plus. Okay. Good night. Okay. Bye. Good night. All right. We have three callers that have pressed one to let us know that they have a question. And our next caller is coming from the 209 area code. From the 209, you are live on the air with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hi. Um, I have, hi, good after. Good evening. Um, I have a question about some uh, St. Jones wort tincture that I made last summer. 
and I went to get my um, get some out of the big jar I made, and it all the alcohol evaporated. So I guess oh, I didn't have you, the. Your jar was not well sealed. Correct. Can I pour alcohol in there and use it, or should I just start over this summer? Um, I don't know. Try it, huh? You, yeah. Because I would think all to, my way of thinking is all the medicinal stuff is still in the jar. It didn't evaporate with the alcohol. So if I pour in new alcohol, it'll dissolve in there and I can use it. Give it a try and see what happens. Okay. I will. I'll let you know. Thank Good. you. That was, that was green green blessings. Green blessings. Oh, Good go night. Ahead. Good night. All right, and I'll remind everyone listening, if you have a question, please press 1 and let us know, and you will be in line to speak live on the air with Susan. We have two callers who have pressed 1, and the next is calling from the 330 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Good evening, Susan. Can you hear me? I can. Hi. Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for all that you do. Um, I have two questions, and I'll get to the second one if there is time. But the first one I feel is a little bit more pressing. Um, I am currently 31 weeks pregnant and was recently given a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. So that in itself has held some challenges for me, but um, upon doing some self-work and recognizing the fears that I have surrounding that and things and and actually starting to uh, listen to my dietitian and her guidance instead of thinking that I know better, I've managed to stabilize my numbers a lot. I'm currently checking my blood sugar four times a day. And when I do... Good for you. Give us, just because I'm curious, give us an example of where you thought you knew better and then followed her advice. (laughs) Well, um, I used to only eat fresh fruit in the mornings, and that's just how I've lived my life. Fruit is a great way to start my day. Well, oh, fruit is the worst clo- thing in the morning for a diabetic. <laughs> yes. So things like things like that. When I was like, okay, and I looked at her guidance, saw okay, fruit only with a protein, and in between meals. Um. She did say that upon looking at my numbers and talking to me both about just how I feel throughout the day and um, my health history, she feels strongly that I was hypoglycemic before getting pregnant um, and then the the gestational diabetes. So I feel better about um, following her, the... <laughs> 
licensed dietitian's guidance, as my stubborn self should have from the beginning. Um, and I, I've raised some some things, and you know, uh, it, we've got an, a good open discussion going, and I feel confident about that. I am curious if there is if there are any herbal allies that I can be working with also to maybe help stabilize things a little bit further. Yes, and they're really easy to find. You just go on the Internet and look for herbs that are contraindicated for diabetes. <laughs> okay, such as... So those are all of the ones that affect blood sugar, right? Yes. And they say, well, you can't take these because you're taking medications and they would, you know, they would affect your blood sugar and then you'd be taking too much medication, which, of course, is your goal. Ah, I see. Okay. And avoiding, avoiding medication is, is, a, is very important to me. Very important. Right. And there's slews of herbs. But okay. basically what I've found, because I come from a family in which my grandfather, before insulin, was cut to pieces, mm-hmm. right, using a toe here, a foot there, a leg here and there, right, and my um, grandmother had diabetes, and my uh, younger brother has diabetes very badly. Um, so I, I have seen it and been around it and very much um, wanted to maintain uh, good and even blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. And you are drinking nourishing herbal infusions, yes? I am, yes. Good. That's a good, you know, base and a good start. They're using stinging nettle in South America to reverse diabetes. Interesting. Okay. So the polyphenols, the minerals, and so on are going to help you to use the insulin that you're making. And that's really what we want, is we want the cells to open up and use that insulin instead of turning a blind eye to it. Sure. And so that's the meditation that I like, is to <coughs> opening on a cellular level to sweetness. Mm. Okay. Okay. It can be hard to maintain a belief in the sweetness of life. Yes. Lately it's been a little harder even. Yes. We can feel safer and more protected to shut down. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So spending some time in your mind, finding that way to relax into the sweetness and the openness. Mm. Even if it's just a minute or two, it counts. Doesn't Nobody has to do it 100% of the time. But as many times a day as you can remember and bring yourself back to that. I love that. Thank you for that very much. You are welcome. What keeps blood sugar even is fiber, right? Yes, yes. 
you know, educate yourself, find out what has fiber, mm-hmm. and, and, and then adjust your diet so that there's a lot of fiber in your diet. That can be challenging, especially in the latter part of pregnancy. Yes. If kale and collards are great for fiber but not for your gut right now. Right, right. But <laughs> Finding that balance is, is a little right. tricky. So it looks but. more like peanut butter and peas than black beans in this <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the uh, nourishing herbal infusions, I I rotate through the standard five. Now that I am in my third trimester, I have incorporated uh, red raspberry leaf as an infusion and not just as a nice tea here and there. So I've put that into my rotation. There's nothing I need to worry about with that, right? That's a good idea, is it not? Red raspberry leaf is a mineral-rich astringent. Mm-hmm. It has been used throughout the world by pregnant women. And the lore around it varies so much from place to place, time to time, and culture to culture, that it's almost laughable. Okay. So in one place, it's absolutely unsafe to use raspberry in the last trimester of the pregnancy. Mm. In another place, it's wonderful to use it in the last trimester, but you should never use it in the first trimester. Mm-hmm. The few studies that have been done with it do not show that raspberry leaf in any way causes premature birth mm-hmm. or particularly aids in birth, but women who did drink raspberry seemed to recover better, but it could have been that people, women who drank raspberry were simply altogether eating better and more concerned about themselves, and that's why they recovered faster. Yes. Gotta love studies, don't we? So we don't. We can't really say anything for or against red raspberry leaf. If you like okay. it, it's fine. If you're choking it down, stop. Okay. That's kind of where I've been at. I don't love the flavor. Maybe I'll just go back to put incorporating it into some of my tea blends, maybe. There you go. Sounds perfect. Great, great. Thanks for letting me sound that off. If there is time, I have a quick question about my tincture making. Sarah Ellen, do we have time? How many people have their hand raised? We have one other caller with their hand raised at this time. Okay, go ahead with your second question. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what I am doing wrong, but I've had several tinctures, um, all made with fresh herb, and after I stashed them away and went to go bottle some, I noticed that about the top third of my jar is dark, black almost. It has, has, it has have I ruined it? 
No, you haven't ruined it, but it's oxidized. Okay. And that occurs because the jar wasn't filled to the top. Okay. Or because you opened it and poured some of the tincture off and left the plant material sticking up. Mm, I see. Okay. I don't, okay. So I don't have to throw these away. They're just not beautiful as they would have been. Well, in their own different ways. We've developed some tannins. Okay, okay. And tannins are not awful. Mm-hmm. And, and, but no, it hasn't ruined the tincture. Fantastic. And you'll see from year to year as you continue to tincture the same herbs that some years those herbs will be more tannin-rich and the tincture itself will be darker. Okay. So dark is beautiful. Yes. Just that the tinctures wouldn't be beautiful, but they can, dark tinctures <laughs> can be beautiful too. Great. I love that. That's excellent. These are these are mostly for me, so I'm yes. not I'm not scared of, of them not of dark being. <laughs> yeah, I'm not scared of the darkness. I'll embrace Good. that. I'm, and oh, I'm so glad I've got a couple. Um, and I feel like I can never tincture enough yarrow in a year. I feel like no matter what uh, I tincture, I can use it. Doing that, yes. Yarrow really so get, I, really oxidizes quickly like that. Okay, the whole plant, okay. All plant in there can turn very dark. All right. Oh, well, I I feel better about all things, Susan. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. Bye now. Okay, we have one caller with their hand raised, and they are calling from the 310 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Hello, Susan. Good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, We actually spoke um, a few weeks back. I had called because I was having a lot of issues around my digestive system and having a lot of pain um, in my lower chest, upper abdomen area. And I was having, um, which would increase with food of any kind. Um, So the thing that I came to after doing a bunch of research um, on my own was uh, that it seemed like it might have aligned with pancreatitis. And we talked about that. Um, We talked about story medicine and other ways that we could support sort of the digestive system, including um, dandelion tincture, which I had been or dandelion in any form, which I have been incorporating. Um, so things seem to be okay. I was, I was having, so over the past three to four weeks, um, uh, that episode of whatever it was that was happening seemed to subside. Um, it was through fasting, and that seemed to work, thankfully, because I tried a lot of other things, but fasting did seem to, to help. So at that point, I went back to my, my regular diet, even though I, I had a little bit of hesitancy around that because the protocol is usually to, to, at least for a little while, to eat very low fat when recovering from pancreatitis. 
I'm not used to eating a low fat diet. I eat, you know, um, dairy and cheese and meats and so forth. So I thought, well, let's just see how it goes. Maybe my pancreas is back to full function. And so I kind of just, I, I, I was sort of listening to my body and, and seeing how it went. Um, so the pain sort of continued for the last uh, two to three weeks, you know, since since other symptoms had gone away. The pain was still there. It was primarily on the left side, uh, kind of like a, it would come and go. It was sort of like a sharp pain, but it wasn't, it wasn't so distressing that I was thinking I needed immediate medical attention. Um, so I was just, I was just taking things slowly and I was of course, you know, sticking with my, my infusions every day and really trying to get a lot of, um, well-cooked greens and these sorts of things. Um, so a few days ago, uh, the other symptoms started to come back that I experienced, um, four to five weeks ago. So, uh, it's very distressing when it happens because, Essentially, what it feels like, it feels like I'm being poisoned. And the reason I say this, it's not actually just an imaginative thing. I, um, I once, it's that's a whole other longer story that I won't get into. But I, I stupidly uh, ate part of a uh, death lily bulb, thinking it was something else. <laughs> um, and I, I was very ill. And I thought at that, that was like the closest I've ever come to thinking I was, I was actually not going to perhaps make it. Um, and that experience of being that acutely ill from ingesting something that essentially was, was poisonous to my system is the only other, that is the, the only other experience I've had that I could kind of relate this to. Obviously this being a much different experience and a much lesser scale. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not profusely sick. Things are not, um, you know, sort of pouring out of me in the ways that I was when, when I ate that, that bowl. But, um, but that sensation of, uh, it's, it's a yuckiness. It's, it's an ickiness. It's, it's when I, it's when I eat anything, um, and there's a sensation in my in my chest area that it's like a swelling, it's like a a very unease, unwell, ill feeling, and it's there's a lot of sort of bloating that goes along with it, and feeling very full. But but there's also this tingling that happens that makes me really kind of feel into this like my body is is trying to is is somehow. Um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, what's happening. But, but again, I, 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 the symptoms seem to align with a, a acute pancreatitis. Um, so having said that, um, I am now fasting again. And I'm on the second day of fasting. And I finally am starting to feel a little bit of relief. Um, the pain has come down quite a bit uh, today, thankfully. And... Um, some of the other symptoms such as the nausea and like that, that kind of sick feeling in my chest, um, are, are all seeming to, 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 to lessen. So I'm feeling into a bit of relief around that. Um, and I'm also, um, supporting myself through, I mean, the, thank God for nourishing herbal infusions because I am really heavily relying on, well, nettle is like 
for some reason, <laughs> you were just talking about nettle um, with a previous caller, but I, I just, that's like all I want is nettle when this, when this happens, um, my body's just asking for that. And, and it seems to really be helping and supporting, you know, my system while I'm going through this. So oh, I'm I get so the, relieved to hear that. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it's so easy to feel like a victim when your pancreas is not working right. <laughs> because yeah. it just, you know, just like, you know, nothing, nothing pleases it. And you, I, 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 I think you're right. I think you are being poisoned. I think when your pancreas can't produce the enzymes to help in digestion, I think you are poisoned. Mm-hmm. Through that lack. So, will you be able to take care of this by yourself, or will you need more medical help? I don't know. Sounds like so far so good with what you're doing for yourself. And you can't fast forever. Yeah. So I might add that this time around, um, I, I was I was hoping for support through through like the, the medical system because having gone through the fasting previously uh, on my own, it was very difficult. And I thought if there were a way that I could be in the hospital and they could be monitoring me and having me on fluids and so forth, that would be helpful. Um, so the, the tricky part of all of this is it, it is not showing up on any diagnostic tests that they've done so far. So it's, it's an interesting thing that my lipase and my amylase levels you know, the enzymes that the pancreas produces, at least according to my blood work, are within normal range, um, which got me, in terms of my research, I actually ended up kind of going down a little bit of an internet rabbit hole around folks who have had uh, chronic pancreatitis and their experiences, because it doesn't, apparently it doesn't always necessarily show up. Um, on, on the blood work, and um, if, if it's if it's a more chronic type of thing, um, and so they weren't they didn't really believe me. Essentially, <laughs> they just said, you know, this is probably uh, gastric uh, uh, reflux, and uh, you know, they prescribed me some sort of medication for regulate my acid, which I didn't actually even and take because I knew that that was not what was happening um, so in a way I am on my own a bit um, yes I hear you you are not diagnosable yeah <laughs> and therefore not treatable <laughs> right right which in a way is a blessed state to be in but scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you said, because you were hoping, you know, to have someone 
guide you and to make it a little easier for you. But that's not um, what's being offered up, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. aren't any, you know, herbs that are specific for helping the pancreas, but you're right that it's often considered important to eat less fat, not because fat is bad, but because it's a stressor. And so, so in the same way that you're fasting, if there's a way to see um, eating low fat for a while as just something that you're doing for a short time. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to make a permanent dietary change, but that it might be the thing that you need to do to give yourself the space and the time to help your pancreas. yourself mm-hmm. yeah that's it's good to hear I just was feeling conflicted because I, I rely so much on animal fats in my in my diet and uh, other types of fats that it was hard for me to wrap my my head around. But I I think it's helpful if I consider it something that is a short term to really help support and heal my pancreas, and that it doesn't necessarily mean you know a long term dietary shift. Yeah. Thing you're going to be doing for now. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I say this is that you just experimented with going back to eating fat and it didn't work well. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So let's experiment the other way around and see what happens. Mm-hmm. 
you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I realized that blood tests are not good indicators of health, obviously, as, as I've learned from you and your, and your show. But um, I do just want to share that the times where I have gone in and, and gotten blood work done um, and, you know, they come back with a, like, everything looks, looks fine. There's, there's doesn't seem to be anything wrong. Um, even during, even in the midst of like, after many days of fasting, um, where you would think that there might be deficiencies in certain numbers of certain minerals or so, or, or vitamins or whatever it is. And they always come back to me and they say, your, your vitamins and your minerals and your electrolytes look fantastic. <laughs> And I laughed to myself because, like, I know those are the herbal. Like, I am just every day think so thankful uh, for these herbal infusions because they have been they have been getting me through this. They have been supporting me. They have been providing me my body with all that that my body needs. Um, and 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 I got a little bit of proof. I mean, I already knew that, but you know, just having these tests done, sort of in the midst of a very difficult sort of digestive situation and. Um, where I, I know that I'm not eating nutrients in other ways through my food, but, but of course, you know, uh, the infusions are food and I am the, and they, they've just been, they've been, uh, uh, you know, just such a wonderful, wonderful gift. Um, so I just wanted to share that bit, bit with you. Thank you. It's always wonderful to hear and it never fails just thrill me that the infusions are here for us, especially when we can't eat. Mm-hmm. That they are so available to the body that even if the digestive system is struggling and not being able to do what it needs to do that the nutrition can still get through. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for reminding us once again that that has been working so well for you and I wish that um it becomes clearer to you. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear what our astrologer friend has to say this evening because I've heard from other sources that we're coming into a very important time where it's going to be easier than ever to really manifest um, what it is you want. And, of course, all the fairy tales remind us that it's really important to be very specific and very careful about what it is that you want. Mm. I remember my mom looking at me and saying, you know, somebody had asked her if she could have anything in the world, what would she like? And she closed her eyes and she said, I'd like to have fresh sheets on my bed every day. And she said, within the week, my dad became incontinent and she had fresh sheets Mm. on her bed every day. And she said, I didn't say that I wanted somebody else to change them. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, that's uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so. Along those lines, I'm wondering if there might be um, some sort of story medicine or mind medicine I could bring into this process in terms of, like, asking for what I want or envisioning um, health and healing to my, to my pancreas. The pancreas is really right there near the center of us. And the pancreas is right there where the butterflies, you know, because, oh, I have butterflies in my stomach. That's where the butterflies Mm -hmm. live. Mm. And there's a very, very big nerve that goes through there called the vagus nerve. And it's a switching center for the two nervous systems, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And you know those as the nervous system that makes you fight or run away or freeze, or the nervous system that makes you um, greet and groom, meet and eat. And the energy of pancreas inflammation, pancreas shutdown, is the energy of too much freeze and fight and flight and not enough groom and greet and eat, right? Hmm. So at its simplest, treating yourself to like an hour spa session at home Mm. A candlelit bath, if you go in for that kind of thing. If not, a hot shower and wrap up afterwards. Paint your toenails. Do something fun and and joyous for yourself. Mm. In my Greenwich Correspondence course, one of the exercises is to have a beauty party with your friends, and my most memorable report on that was a woman who was living in Costa Rica, and she said her avocado tree was loaded with ripe avocados. She she invited three friends over, and they smeared avocado on their naked bodies from the soles of their feet to the (laughs) tops of their heads, laid in the sun until they smelled like guacamole, and then went (laughs) for a swim in the ocean. (laughs) We can't all pull that off, but we can make our best effort at it. Hmm. You know, as you were saying that, I was remembering, and of course I'm surprised and also not surprised at how quickly I forgot this, but um, when we first spoke and and we were bringing in um, uh, serenity medicine, I began, um, and, and I was very sick at that time, and I began to implement the candlelight baths exa- as exactly as you just said. Um, and it was every day. It was so important to me, and, and that really helped me through that. Um, and that was around the time that my symptoms started to really subside, and, and I started to feel, you know, health and healing sort of returning. Um, and I was determined at the time I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this. I I have the time during COVID right now 
to, you know, I, I'm not working as much. And so I have this time and, you know, I, I, I somehow it sort of got pushed to the side and I was sort of back to like you were the, the, the fight flight or freeze response is so it, it, when you named that, I felt my body just kind of like relax because that, that is something that I really have struggled with for a lot of my life, if not all of my life. I mean, I had a very traumatic experience in the womb where my parents were in a terrible car accident. And, and I, I mean, I, I don't know for sure, of course, how that affected and shaped me, but I think that I do have a, a what you might call an overactive immune system, or uh, sorry, overactive nervous system, and so um, yeah, and so and being such, <laughs> I kind of shifted back to what I was used to and forgot about the bringing these baths, you know, in or or even just doing other things that brought me joy and fulfillment, and um, and then here we are. So I, I really needed to hear that reminder. Um, and it also helps to remind me too that like I I think I tend to complicate things and think there needs to be like some really hard thing that I need to be doing that 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 will be more effective and just to bring it back to the simplicity piece I'm just hearing you speak to like it it doesn't have to be hard and in fact it shouldn't be um, it just needs to be joyful <laughs> like that should be at the center of our lives and I just love that the like bringing in the pancreas is being at the center I feel that so deeply with this whole experience of like tuning into what is this what is this trying to teach me what 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 is my pancreas trying to tell me and and I felt a little lost and so just even hearing you reflect those things I'm I'm so uh so deeply appreciative because it it really touches me uh and strikes a chord in me very deeply so thank you you're welcome thank you Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Thank you. It's been been such an honor to be able to talk to you. Mm. Well, keep calling, okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Susan. To be continued. Okay. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Green blessings. Good night. Green, Green blessings. Okay, and we do have another caller that has raised their hand by pressing one to let us know they have a question. And the caller is coming from the 843 area code. 843, you are live on the air. Hello, how are you guys doing? I'm not a guy. I'm a gal. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, frame of speech. How are y'all doing? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm good. Uh, so, like, I think a lot of what you're saying is interesting. I, I'm actually from, like, the, the hollers of Appalachia. You know, and herbal medicine has been been used, you know, a lot still to this day, you know, because, you know, a lot of families can't afford to, get to, the, to go to the doctors. And I do think that, you know, you know, a big pharmaceutical is mostly about the profit. Um, but I do my, – my one question is I do believe there's a line because I do believe if, if all herbal medicine – you know, was uh, correct. There had been no drive for people to find, you know, new medical uh, ad- advances, and you know, uh, you know, you know, and they wouldn't have found new ways to cure things if the old ways were working. Well, one of the things that you find out pretty soon when you start getting involved 
with herbal medicine is that herbs can sometimes be very effective if you're willing to put in the time and effort that it takes to help yourself with them. So for many people, it's just a lot easier to take a dose of antibiotic once or twice a day rather than to take an herbal anti-infective every couple of hours. I, I, I agree with that, and I, and I definitely do think, you know, people are over-prescribed, you know, drugs. Uh, I'm not even going to call it medicine, it's oh, drugs. Yes, they def- that, that's, you know, completely agreed upon that people are over-prescribed drugs. But I, 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 do th- I do think that, you know, um, we have made, you know, advances in medicine that, that are good. I do think there are certain things that need doctors and do need, you know, actual, you know, medicinal treatment and, and I don't mean by herbal. I know you might consider, you know, herbal medicinal, but I, I would I'm just trying to use a word to you know, just to separate the two. But I don't think herbs can be healed for everything. And I, w- I would like to ask you one other question. As you're talking about, you know, like being able to heal and like using herbs and you know, this is of course a very old, you know, tradition. Uh do you think maybe that's what like like even like what Jesus Christ was doing, like back when he performed miracles was using herbs? Well, certainly at the time when Jesus lived, there weren't any drugs. And it depends on how broad you are going to cast your definition of the word herb. But basically, what we have is a very, very long period of human existence, well over a million years in which herbs were the only thing that was yes. so, so, yeah. And then so, even mean, within the million not, years not, you're living within, the vast majority of that, right, and shall we say yeah. 900,000 of it, again, it was only herbs. And even within that last 100,000, it's only been within, within the past 500 years that we had my, anything, my, even any inkling of anything other than herbs. And that, to me, was a natural progression, especially as men, because it was specifically men, who became alchemists, who wanted to view plants as bundles of resources rather than conscious entities. And this alchemy, chem, chem, chemistry, right there. Yeah, yeah, alchemy, alchemy, chemistry. alchemy. So we're starting to see the plants now as chemical compounds. And this is what starts our interest in drugs, is the plants, that the plants contain these chemical compounds. I was at a conference a few years ago. And somebody was telling me about their mushrooms that grew and how they were changing the atmosphere in the greenhouse where they were growing the mushrooms because it caused them to have more of a certain constituent. So you think the plants have like a, almost like a consciousness? I know the plants have a consciousness. So why is it okay to harvest them and, and destroy their seed? 
Because all things here want to be useful. Because okay, you're a man, I'm, I'm, you can only see destruction. But I'm a woman, yeah. so I see creation. Well, you're not a, you're not a woman. You're you're, you're a Jew. I you're am a woman. And you a, cannot and tell me what I am, and I am a woman, and I know what it is to give birth. Thank you. Dream blessings. Good night. All right. And at this time, we do not have any other callers who have pressed 1. I would like to remind everyone listening that if you do have a question, please press 1 to let us know. Uh, We do have a question that has come in um, on our email. Would you like me to go ahead and read that? I'd love it, Sarah Ellen. All right. What is your take on the infrared thermometers that everyone is shooting at everyone's heads these days? Are they safe, and have you read any studies? (laughs) I haven't read any studies. How do you change the channel on your TV? That's an infrared thing. I'm thinking back to a big conference that I was at. And they were talking about orbs, which are these energetic spheres that were showing up in people's photographs that they were taking with digital cameras. And their phones. And they were trying to figure out why not all cameras or phones were able to show the orbs. And they found that they responded to infrared. And that they could be seen better in the infrared wavelength. My granddaughter and daughter and I are right now um, looking at a wonderful video series, a visual guide to the universe and we're being shown obviously that the visual light that we can apprehend is a very small part of the spectrum and that infrared and ultraviolet and there's a lot of other frequencies and with many of the spacefaring telescopes like the Hubble um, that they have sensors and cameras and um, looking at um, all of these different frequencies and seeing the things that are happening there. So um, I am not concerned with having my temperature taken with an infrared device any more than I would be walking in front of someone who is changing the channel on their TV or taking a selfie with my phone, which is likely using an infrared light. All right. Well, we have had two more callers that have queued up uh, to let me know they have a question. And our next caller is coming from the 845 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Hi, Susan. Good to hey. hear you. Hey. How Hello. wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I have your, I guess, you and uh, your granddaughter. Mm-hmm. 
What a beautiful photograph. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Welcome, and thank you for the baked apples. They're delicious. You're very welcome. Uh, My question today is with a problem that I didn't solve for years, uh, but it happened only after I arrived in Woodstock, and that is that no matter what shampoo I use, and then desperately at the end I used what my mother was putting an egg on her head before washing her hair, Uh, I get very itchy. My skin gets extremely itchy after I wash my hair here. Never had that in New York. Do you have any idea about that? I even tried to to wash my hair with filtered water. I thought maybe the minerals mm-hmm. uh, go in Did the water. Make any, did that make any difference? No, no, it didn't. And I tried all kinds of shampoos, very, very light and very this and very that, and then a non-itch shampoo, and that didn't help either. Nothing. Possible, mm-hmm. wash your hair without using soap or water. And the way to do it is it's easiest if you have a natural bristle brush and you put witch hazel, a witch hazel that you buy at the drugstore, mm-hmm. sprinkle it into the brush and brush your hair. Is that an oil, witch hazel? Oh, it's witch hazel. It's a distillate of witch hazel. It's somewhat similar to a tincture. There is one thing that is peculiar, and I noticed only lately because I have a lot of time for noticing <laughs> myself in this situation, uh, and that is my head is a lot hotter than the rest of my body. Is that natural? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes, it is very natural. That's, uh, uh, unfortunately, something that snipers use. Snipers? Yes. Snipers. Because your head is a hot spot. I don't know what the sniper is. I'm sorry. A hired killer. Oh. Oh, my God. What? And what did you say after that? Snipers use what? The fact that they they can get a heat signature on your head to find a target. Oh. Because the head is hot. Hmm. Oh. So, (laughs) yes, your head is hotter. It's true. Oh, all right. You're not making it up. Nothing unusual about that. Okay, at least that is normal. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to worry about there. (laughs) So you say that the distillate... Witch hazel. You just go into any drugstore and say, I want some witch hazel, Uh and 
I think that it's better to get the cheaper drugstore brand, which is just witch hazel, than to get the exotic fancy ones mm-hmm. that have like rose or lavender, any of that, because usually along with that rose or lavender or whatever it is, there's all kinds of other stuff you don't want. You mean if I go to the apothecary, I don't know where I can get that, or the sunflower will have that? Any drugstore. Uh-huh. Same place where you would go to buy aspirin. Yeah, that's, uh, that is uh, CVS. <laughs> yes. Really? Yes. yes. Oh. Oh, okay. So I just ask for witch hazel, and right. and I do have a brush, and I put it on the brush or on my head? And then brush your hair. I put it on my head. Put it on and the brush and brush your hair. Uh-huh. Like? And it will take way all out of your hair, and you won't have to use shampoo at all or get your head wet. And it will dry naturally or whatever? Yes. In fact, you, you will hardly even notice that it's wet. Oh. And, and it will be clean. Yes. Wow. That's, you're taking me into new lands as always. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you that I feel a lot better. I want to tell you that first time in my life, at the age of 78, I danced on the treadmill because I got sick and tired of walking on it. <laughs> and I put some music from the YouTube in my ears, not yes. to hear the, the, the vacuum cleaner that was moving around me. And I really had, for the first time in my life, half an hour of pleasure on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> what a delight. Yes, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> I'm planning to do that tomorrow. I, I do have a ride, and uh, I'm going to try to see if I can replicate the experience. Usually, experiences I had, I could never replicate. They just came like grace out of nowhere. But I'll it's try. always wonderful to be graced. Yes, yes, it is. And I have been. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Green blessings. Get that. Virginia Rosenberg is an intuitive astrologer, and she does it for social change. Her passion is natural healing, natural healing of self and natural healing of society, because she actually believes that healing is innate and that it's a matter of becoming more conscious of it, connected with ourselves, our bodies, each other, and even worlds that are more than human. Virginia Rosenberg sees astrology as a multidimensional map, maybe a book of life. It's a, certainly an ancestral language art that reveals interrelationships between humans and nature. Astrology can also be seen as a tool of perception, or perhaps it's an embodied communication. It allows us to locate ourselves in the cosmic dance of time-space and reweave ourselves into the fabric of what is. Since 2010, Virginia has offered 
over 4,000 readings for clients worldwide. She also teaches classes, does workshops, and offers retreats. She's a prolific writer, and her words on spirituality and culture have gone viral. They inform meditation and study groups across the globe. Virginia Rosenberg is a mother with a capital M, a dirt worshiper, a realm journeyer, and an ever-curious mind wondering what wondrous magic is going to be born between the earth and the sky. Welcome to the show, Virginia. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. So glad that you are here. It's good to be here. I enjoyed tuning into your conversation at the end. Thank you. <laughs> you are welcome. So, um, when you are talking about using astrology for social change, could you explain a little bit more about what that would look like or how that could be? Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, I feel like it's a really multifaceted answer because astrology is really a gateway to so many different awarenesses and understandings and truths. And um, so I see astrology as an ancestral language. Um, I actually studied anthropology quite a bit, and astrology to me is a, a bit of a natural extension of anthropology, so the relationship between humans and culture, um, and I would extend that into the relationship between humans and land that gives birth to culture and, yeah, the relationship between humans and nature and the cosmos at, at large. Astrology is a, a language and a way of perceiving and communicating about those connections between humans and, humans and nature and the cosmos at large. So how it can be applied for social change is when we learn about ourselves through astrology, um, it gives us a way to, I think, really affirm what we already know, affirm our wisdom. Um, one thing I always like to say about astrology is it really describes our essential nature or our true nature. And an example for that is we don't tell a squirrel to be a fish. <laughs> like we recognize the unique qualities of a squirrel and if, if a squirrel is a squirrel then go be a squirrel <laughs> and don't try to be something that you're not um, so astrology really gives us a way to to self-reflect and um, connect with ourselves more deeply and embrace and accept ourselves more deeply and I feel that if we if we live in a world where we're using this language to access our truth and embrace that and also affirm other people being in their truth, then social change is a natural byproduct. I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, over the past few months, we've been having a discussion about truth here. And as far as I'm concerned, I can't have a truth that is different from your truth. To put the word my before the word truth is to make a mockery.
mockery of truth. I can have a belief, my belief, but a truth has to be something that everyone agrees on. That's what makes it true. The speed of light is true. So, respecting each other's beliefs, I think, is very important, but let's not call beliefs truths. Is that okay with you? Certainly. That sounds great. Okay. Because, in fact, astrology is a belief system. It's not a truth system. Yeah, astrology is um, It's a way of... It's like a tool for heightening our observations of patterns and cycles that are innate, um, that are natural, that are extending from the dance between the earth and the sky. So astrology just gives us a way to communicate about those things. And it pulls from a whole historic base of mythology. So to me, astrology is like a living mythology. Um, so I personally like I struggle to ascribe um, like belief in or belief to towards astrology just because I've been a practicing astrologer for so long that in my experience it's like it's not something I have to ascribe faith to. It's just something that reveals itself to me over and over again um, throughout the work. Yeah. So, can you share with us something that's been revealed to you many times? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another thing that comes to me too is I just I feel like astrology is it's a storytelling art. It's a so, absolutely a storytelling right, art. Yes, all beliefs exactly. are stories so, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so something that's been revealed to me, uh, like a really, a really easy access point with astrology, is I often track transit cycles with clients when we're doing readings. And the most, one of the most accessible transit cycles to track are Saturn transits. Um, so every seven-ish, seven to eight years, we have a major Saturn transit to our own Saturn, so between ages 7 and 8, between ages 14 and 15, between ages 21 and 22, 27, 29, and so on. And um, if we look back through our lives at those particular pivotal moments, those turning points, then we can see themes that build upon each other. And it's like, it's like a reverberation um, so that's when I say that astrology just reveals itself to me over and over again. It's like, I don't have to believe in Saturn transits having an influence because I just see that they do and that they have a particular influence that has to do with restructuring and what some people might refer to as karma or dharma or life direction, life path. There's big moments um, that always occur around those times of the Saturn turning at the wheel. Um, so that's just one example of what 
gets revealed over and over again through this lens. So when you say a Saturn return, I think that what you mean is that Saturn was at a particular place in the sky at the moment of birth and that the Saturn return is Saturn's return to that place in the sky. Exactly. That's the precise definition of a Saturn return. And it occurs once every 29 and a half years. Aha. Yeah, that's what I thought, too, was that it was about every 29 or 30 years. But you said seven years. Yeah, so what I'm talking about with the seven years is if you divide 29 and a half by four, then you get the four quarters of that cycle. So just like you can easily see the four quarters of the moon cycle, like we started a new moon, that would be like a Saturn return. And then we have a waxing quarter moon, that would be Saturn being at seven and a half years-ish. And then we have a full moon that's the 14 to 15 years for Saturn. It's called a Saturn opposition and so on. So at those moments when um, the cycle is at its inception, which would be the new moon point, or at its culmination, which is the oppositional point after 14, 15 years, if we're talking about a Saturn cycle, and the halfway points in between, you know, there's like, there's special development, there's special awarenesses, but there's special needs that emerge at those times. It's, it's similar to the solstices and the equinoxes and how we measure time that way seasonally. Now, I've heard people who do like what they call social astrology, which could be different, um, say that America was born at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, or no, America was born, you know, at the winning of the Revolutionary War, and and then, you know, set up a chart for the United States. Is that what you do? Is that your kind of social astrology? I have looked at the chart um, for the United States, certainly. Um, I don't practice, I don't make it a practice too much, because my main focus is people, individuals, Mm -hmm. um, because I feel that we are really the nexus of social change as each individual. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. So, so I have less of a, a vested interest in looking at national and institutional charts, but I do, I do think they hold some really interesting insights. But more in terms of social change, you're thinking about what I would call grassroots the individual yes. and the individual yes. effort. And so so that individual effort can be helped by astrology in what ways, what specific ways? Yeah, um, uh, so many ways. So one of the ways that the individual effort can be helped by astrology is that astrology contains all of these symbols and stories that help to reveal kind of more of our essence, more of our true nature, more of who we are. So um, a lot of my philosophical foundation is Taoist because I I was trained in Taoist um, internal martial arts. 
and something that we discuss a lot from that viewpoint is um, that the process of sort of liberation, whether that's self-liberation, collective liberation, et cetera, is really a process of removing conditioning. And as we remove continuously the conditioning, then uh, we sort of make way for the true nature or the true essence that is connected to nature to arise and to become more effulgent and to gain strength and power. So the stories and the symbols that are held in astrology, I find, um, and also the the inquiries that the symbols prompt, because I do a lot of questioning with my my clients and my clients, people who come and sit with me for classes or one-on-ones, I ask them a lot of questions um, so that they can tune into what's alive for them and sort of clear the way to access their own wisdom more and more. So astrology really is like a a portal created by symbols and um, stories that helps people to self-reflect because I feel that there's really – there's a void of um, cultural myth that we're living inside. And so to me, astrology really helps to repair that void because it's, it's like a treasure box of um, ancestral myth that's been developed over the years. Mm-hmm. So we're living at a time right now where ideas that I have had about the sources of racism um, are becoming hearable for decades. I've um, said things like uh, the Zodiac is is, um, mostly um, based on Greek and Roman attributes, which is white, white, white. There's many different... Oh, sorry, were you finished? No, I I was just going to say, so... um, you know, for years and years, people have said, oh, it's, that's meaningless. But I think that we're now in a time where we have to admit it's not meaningless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the, the whiteness is not meaningless, you mean? It's not meaningless that the Zodiac is about white men. So, yeah, I would say it's complicated. Um, there are many, many different forms of astrology, schools of astrology, styles of astrology. Um, so there's, I, I think what you're referring to primarily is, is like Western tropical astrology. Um, and the way that this is complex, I think primarily is just like anything in the world, the things that survive are the things that have been used um, by imperialist forces to gain and, and propagate power. So, you know, for kingdoms throughout centuries, there's always been a royal astrologer. And so there's a way that the myths and the stories do get developed alongside that binding of where power is and where political force is and where resources are. Like, absolutely. I I would say, you know, astrology is a language just like any other language. And which languages have been untainted um, by the forces of of whiteness and supremacy and really, like, imperialist domination? Um, I mean, we just 
we just look at the the continent of Africa and and where certain languages are institutionalized. You know, where is French institutionalized? Where is English institutionalized? Um, all based on a colonial history of imperialist domination. So astrology is absolutely not exempt from that and not immune from that. But what really excites me about it is also that languages, um, they're not just a tool of the state, right? They're like people speak languages. (laughs) So what you're speaking about with like the, um, the grassroots element comes back in here again, where people can determine how to relate to the stories and how to relay them and how to reclaim them. And I feel especially passionate about teaching people the astrological framework so that they can incorporate it into their own embodied experience and then retell the story in the way that feels true for them and current now. So to me, that is also um, an element of kind of rebellion that we can exercise as we interface with this tool. Mm. Very exciting. Can you give us a specific example of it? Yeah, actually. Um, so one thing that I always learned about astrology was the, the archetype of Capricorn, for example. Capricorn was always taught to me as, oh, Capricorn is about big business and corporation and government. And we had a lot of planets in Capricorn, um, especially in, in 2020 and 2019. It was a, a historic lineup that hasn't been seen since, I think it was like 1256 or something like that. Um, somewhere, interestingly, somewhere around the time that um, the current banking institutions were like seeded. So there is this this banking element and this kind of social structure element to Capricorn. But when I was journeying with Capricorn for this, this last couple of years, what I remembered was these other facets of the archetype, which is Capricorn is also the elder. So to me, Capricorn is the grandmothers, the grandfathers, the wise ones. Um, it's the wisdom that sustains throughout time, no matter how much it tries to be controlled or suppressed or tamped down or locked away. Um, It's like that bone deep wisdom, like in the old growth forest, uh, the most ancient life forms. So that is how I've started to kind of restory how I relate to and talk about Capricorn now. Like it's, it's, it's relevant sometimes to um, think about Capricorn from the lens of uh, achievement and recognition and all these things that are more kind of external, like social structure accolades, which a lot of Capricorn heavy people do get kind of pulled into those places. But I think restoring it in a way that allows people to tap into another framework that maybe is more indigenous, um, to being human uh, before this conditioning and before these social structures got developed into this tower, then, yeah, there, there's something in that that I think can be empowering for the individual. Oh, I like that. 
would you share with people how they can get in touch with you? Perhaps somebody wants to connect with you for a reading or further studies. Yeah, um, my website is just my name. It's virginiarosenberg.com. And I will be relaunching my school sometime this year. I, I don't have the exact date yet, but probably by June at the very latest. So um, the best thing to do is to get on my mailing list, and that way you'll get notified. My schedule is currently closed for readings because I was already booked um, into May, and I just wanted to create some space so that I can work more on developing the teaching tools because I tend to reach a lot more people that way. And it also gives people the, the access to start becoming astrologers themselves so they don't have to rely on me. <laughs> so they can read the astrological times on their own without needing a translator. <laughs> yes, of course, you know, Vicki Noble you know, made a bold move by bringing in the asteroid goddesses into her astrology. Absolutely. I love things like that. You know, that's that's definitely an example of a way that this resource can be, um, like, harnessed uh, for a particular um, cultural momentum and acceleration that needs to gain gain ground <laughs> so uh, when you say cultural momentum that needs to gain ground um, is that something that you're seeing astrologically oh yeah oh yeah the, the stars really speak to that a lot in the planets and all the heavenly bodies so an example is like here you just gave this example of Vicki Noble with the asteroid goddesses it's like here's this person who's really bringing a focus on divine feminine facets in astrology. Um, and something that people don't necessarily know unless they've studied this work is every time there's been a, a discovery of a planet, it always correlates with a major cultural shift that's taking place um, on the ground. So, for example, uh, there was... Let's see. We can go back to we can go back to Pluto. I know Pluto's been demoted in the astronomical community now, and I don't think it's considered a planet any longer. Uh, but it was, and when when Pluto was first sort of brought in um, as a planet to the astronomical community, it was actually during World War II. So then Pluto becomes representative as the planet of death, um, annihilation, trauma total transformation and ultimately rebirth and this sort of phoenix rising from the ashes archetype. I think when we think back to World War II, those archetypes can seem really apparent. So astrology comes from, you know, this interplay of, of heaven and earth and this philosophical tenet that as above, so below, as without, so within, vice versa. Um, and so when a new planet is is discovered and kind of enters into the lexicon, it always carries the trait of what was going on for humanity at that time. So do you know why Pluto was demoted? Yeah, good question. I, I'm wondering. I know why. I, like, I know oh, why yeah, because, because, um, we, because 
bodies bigger than Pluto have been found out there. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't cause any social shift (laughs) because they weren't called a planet? No, I would beg to differ. I would say that... I think they did cause a social shift. I would say likely we're in the shift right now. (laughs) That then, in hindsight, when we look back on when the planets were discovered, when they were named, and when they entered the general like lexicon. 20, 20, 20 25 years ago? So you're going to, you know, cast such a wide net that anything can fit. Say that again? I didn't catch the beginning. I of said these planets were discovered, you know, and they're, they're not planets any more than Pluto is a planet, um, 20, 25 years ago. And if you're going to say that we're in that now, then we're casting such a wide net that anything could could be said to to correlate. Oh, I yeah, I see what you're saying. So actually, that's an interesting note because um, astrologers, depending on the astrologer, people use all kinds of of heavenly bodies for interpretation. So it's not necessarily just limited to the planets that are in our solar system, just like um, your example with the asteroid goddesses, how here's somebody who's really focusing on a set of asteroids out there and gleaning information from how, the, how they're named and the mythologies that they carry and the presence the that they hold. asteroids are between the Earth and Mars. They're not beyond Pluto. No, I, I wasn't implying that they're beyond oh, okay. Pluto. Okay, I thought you were talking yeah, about things. On beyond Pluto and bodies out in that area. Now the asteroids are close up. Yeah, no, they're the asteroids are in an, 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 an they're kind of in like an interplanetary belt. They separate yes. the the personal inner planets and the transpersonal outer planets. Mm. And so even at this- even at that, and Vicky would be the first to admit it, the asteroid goddesses partaking of the same Greco-Roman myths tend to be pretty white, even though those people weren't white. And it's a delight that I am actually starting to see some depictions of Egyptians with darker skin. You know, we've always been shown these, like, visions of Cleopatra looking like a white girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Jesus, too. You know, he yeah. was uh, Aramidic and was certainly, certainly quite dark-skinned um, and probably kinky-haired as well. So astrology, in one way, is a pattern and a metaphor that has been used to put white men at the top of the heap, but it can be reclaimed. Right, exactly. so that's... That's exactly what I was going to say is that um, you're mentioning, you know, these figures, these icons, how they've been depicted, um, Cleopatra, et cetera. It's like history is always rewritten by whoever's in power to serve power so that they can stay in power. <laughs> and yet um, astrology and, and all of these stories can be a tool of, for, and by the people. So that's why um, – I think it's, it can be really profound to share the, the tools of astrology more at large so that anyone who's inspired doesn't matter what your race is or your background is or your class is, or et cetera, um, but anyone who's inspired to interface with this language and, and feels moved by it and wants to integrate it and kind of embody it more 
yeah, it's like take what speaks to you, leave the rest and tweak it, you know, reinvent it. I feel like, again, I just think about my relationship with different literature and things like that, that I've read over the years. It's like, I've, I absorb the parts of it that feel um, motivating to me and it informs my life. And yeah, that's, that's how I see astrology as this sort of like linguistic tool of reclaiming and, and kind of expanding our perception about how we want to engage with the wider world and ourselves. That is wonderful. I could talk to you all night, but we're on a blog talk show and they cut us off and we are just about at the final bell. So I'm going to thank you for helping me to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients. Very beautiful threads you have brought to this endeavor. And Sarah Ellen, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for helping me to return herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Be back with you next week. Green blessings, everybody, and good night. Thank you. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.